0: All right, we're there in Job chapter number 5. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are studying through the book of Job. We're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're taking one chapter every week. Uh, This is a big book. It's a long book. So we're uh, going through a chapter every week. And tonight, we are continuing through the book of Job, of course. And here in Job chapter 5, we have Eliphaz uh, continuing to respond to Job. So I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 3... We had Job break the silence, and he began this conversation, uh, which he's going to regret starting. And uh, he's already regretting starting in this chapter. And then uh, in chapter 4, we had Eliphaz. So the, the way this works is we're kind of in round 1, because there's several rounds of going back and forth between Job and his friends. So we're in round 1, and we had Job begin in chapter three, Eliphaz responded in chapter four, and then chapter five is actually just a continuation of that response. So his response to Job is in both chapter four and chapter five. So we're going to just walk through this chapter tonight, and uh, usually I'm pretty good at uh, just taking a chapter and outlining it, and that's usually how I like to Uh, preach sermons, but some chapters are just uh, difficult to outline or unable, at least I'm unable to outline them. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this chapter. We're just going to read every verse and uh, I'll make commentaries and applications as we go. But what I want to focus in on tonight, and I want to remind you that with the book of Job, this is kind of uh, the way it is. Uh, We get to the end of the book of Job and God tells us that Job was right and his three friends were wrong. So we know that his friends are wrong. Uh, but when you read the chapters, because this conversation between Job and his three friends goes on for over 30 chapters. And when you read the chapters, you'll have one, two complete chapters where someone like Eliphaz, who's, who God tells us at the end is wrong, is speaking. Uh, so you, you think, you know, everything in here is wrong. But what you need to understand is there's two ways that Job's friends are wrong. One way is in the sense that they're wrong, Uh, they're just flat out wrong. They are incorrect, or they are just lying about Job. Uh, And then there's another way in which they're wrong, um, in the sense that what they're saying is correct, but it's not correct about Job. So they're saying something that's true, but it's not true about Job. So when you read these chapters, and in fact, I think it makes the the book of Job interesting in your daily Bible reading, when you're reading through these chapters, to try to figure out, okay, what's right, what's wrong, what is Eliphaz saying that's just flat out wrong, what is he saying that is maybe true, but not true of Job, or is there anything that they're saying that is true, Uh, so that's what we're going to do tonight, I'm just going to, as we go through every verse, I'm going to tell you, this is wrong, this is right, and I'll show you why, so we're there in Job chapter 5, and here in verse 1, and what I did in my notes is I actually just highlighted every every uh, uh, verse that was wrong, I just highlighted in red, and every verse that was right, I highlighted in green, and you probably don't have those highlights with you or whatever, but if you want to just kind of make a little note, here in verse 1, we're just starting off with Eliphaz being wrong, all right? This is a wrong statement he's going to make, because in he says to Job, and, and, and remember, he's in the midst of just kind of laying into Job. And if you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to check it out. He had that supernatural experience and all those things. And then he says this in Job chapter five, verse one. He says, call now if there be any that will answer thee and to which of the saints will thou turn? So here's what he's saying to Job. He's saying, there's no one for you to call. He says, go ahead and call someone, call now, if there be any to answer thee. But the idea that he's saying is that there's nobody to answer thee, Job. There's nobody here to help you. To which of these saints will ye turn? So this is a false statement that Eliphaz is making. And he's actually almost quoting a Bible verse. And it's interesting because in this chapter, he actually quotes, uh, not word for word, but it's very evident that he uh, understands scripture, but here he's saying something wrong. He's telling Job, go ahead and call, or all right, you can't call. There's no one for you to call Job. There's nobody uh, to help you. So that's a wrong, uh, a wrong statement. Keep your finger there, of course, in Job chapter 5. That's our text for tonight, but go to the book of Jeremiah, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 33. So if you're in the book of Job, you have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and then the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 33, and look at verse number 3. So here's what Elias says to Job. He says, call now, if there be any that will answer thee. Here's what God says in Jeremiah 33, 33. He says, call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So God promises that if his people call unto him, that he will answer them. He says, call unto me, and I will answer thee. Now, it's true that sometimes the answer that God gives is not the answer we wanted. It's true that sometimes the answer God gives is not what we want to hear. But God says, call unto me, and I will answer thee. And this is God speaking to uh, believers what we would call New Testament believers, and what we would call Old Testament saints, he says, call unto me, and I will answer thee. And then, and what we see is Eliphaz, you can go back to Job uh, chapter 5, saying to an Old Testament saint, to Job, he says, call now, if there be any that will answer thee. So we see that's a wrong statement. He's saying the wrong thing. What Eliphaz should be saying to Job is, call unto God, and he will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And of course, we also know that Eliphaz understood salvation. He understood that Job was saved. And I believe that Eliphaz and his three friends were saved uh, themselves. Uh, so I want you to notice that in verse 1, there's this word that comes up. He says, Call now, if there be any that will answer thee. And he says this, And to which of the saints, and to which of the saints, Wilt thou turn? Now, the word "saint" is used throughout the New Testament and is used a lot throughout the Old Testament. But Job, uh, as far as we can tell, based off some of the names that are used and some of the ways that uh, things are described, you know, Job is living during the time probably of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's living during that time of the patriarchs, which would be pretty early in world history. And here you have a life as referring to saints. So this kind of shows you that people have understood Scripture, understood the Word of God, understood the things of God. And, and, and please understand this. When the Bible refers to a saint, it's not what the Catholic Church teaches as a saint. Because what the Bible teaches, you know what the Catholic Church teaches and some other types of religions, they teach that a saint is like a superstar Christian, like, you know, a Christian that did a really good job, and they became a saint, and now you can pray to them, you can pray to the saint. You know, the Bible says that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and we're not to pray to any man that we can pray to God the Father through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, but you say, well, the Bible talks about saints, and what's a saint? The Bible is very clear that every believer is a saint. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you would. I'll just show this to you quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And maybe you're not aware of this with other religions. But with like the Catholic Church, there's actually a five-step process to become a saint. And I I thought maybe you'd think it's interesting. You know, how to be a saint according to the Catholic Church. Step one, you have to wait five years after your death. So, you know, you can't become a saint before five years. Um, But they do make some exceptions. There are some people that they've made exceptions for. Number two, you have to become a servant of God, uh, which means that you have to have been like a nun or a priest or something, you know, whatever they determine a servant of God. I thought we were all supposed to serve God. Um, But, you know, to be a saint, you have to become a servant of God. Number three, you have to show proof of a life of heroic uh, virtue. So there has to be proof that you were out there feeding the homeless, that you were out there, you know, I don't know, mowing somebody's lawn, you're doing something heroic and with virtue. And then step four, there has to be a verified miracle. So five years after your death, there has to be like some sort of miracle that has been verified that it happened as a result. You know, so somebody, you know, your face showed up in like a cornflakes, you know, or something, you know, just something weird like that, right? Like there's a tree and it like has your face in it, or something. Then, you know, and then after they do that, then step five is canonization. Uh, because you know, once you've been dead for five years or not, you know, because they make exceptions sometimes. Once they determine that you were a servant of God, there's proof of heroic virtue, and then there's a miracle that's been formed. Then you're like up for sainthood, but it's not official until canonization which means there has to be a second verified miracle. Um, and usually, <clears throat> excuse me, usually the second verified miracle, it's like the first miracle is like you showed up in the cornflakes um, you know, bowl, and then the second, and then people are like, everybody's coming to see the cornflakes bowl, you know, because as you're facing it, or, you know, the tree or whatever. And then the second miracle is after they've seen you in the cornflakes bowl, now they're praying to you in the cornflakes bowl. Um, And and then once they've prayed and you've answered a prayer, then you can become a saint. So this is a really complicated system to become a saint. Um, I tried to make it as simple as possible for you. But the the problem with this five-step system is that it's nowhere found in Scripture. The Bible doesn't teach any of that at all. In fact, I'll just show you, and we can look at a lot of passages, but I'll just show you very quickly what the Bible teaches it means to be a saint. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Notice verse 2, unto the church of God which is at Corinth. So he's speaking to the church of God which is at Corinth. He's speaking to a local assembly of believers in Corinth and he's looking at those believers. These are people that are alive At this time in Corinth, he says, To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to the church in Corinth and he's saying, And those people are sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice, called to be saints. So Paul says, hey, the people in Corinth, the church of God, which is in Corinth, and of course, a church is an assembly, a congregation of believers, he says, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He's saying this all about this local assembly. They've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been called to uh, be saints. And you say, well, then, was the church of Corinth just a special you know, convent or something? Like, why have they been called to be saints? Notice what he says. He says, "...with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours." Here's what he's saying. He says, "...the believers in Corinth have been called to be saints, but before you start thinking that there's some sort of special breed, he says they've been called to be saints... With all, alongside all, uh, everyone else, he says, With all, that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Now here's what the Bible says. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So uh, how do we get saved? By faith calling upon Christ for salvation. What is this verse teaching? It's teaching that all that in every place call upon the Lord Jesus Christ are called to be saints. Everyone who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ is called to be a saint. So what's a saint? A saint is a believer. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a saint because we've called upon Christ. We've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. So, you know, it, you know it, it, it's special in the sense that we are the saints of God. But it's not as special, you know, in the sense that they're not going to put your picture on a candle or, you know, whatever. Uh, so, um, you know, that's a saint is just a believer. So when you're reading the Bible, just realize, go back to Job chapter 5, just realize that a saint is anyone who called upon the name of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if, if according to First Corinthians 1 everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord is a saint and then in the Old Testament you're just reading about all these saints what does that tell you that tells you that all those people were calling upon the Lord in fact the Bible says even as far as the book of Genesis that people were calling upon the Lord uh, so look, salvation's always been the same Old Testament New Testament it's always been calling upon the Lord uh, for salvation so uh, so we see that in just that first verse there in uh, in job chapter 5 notice uh, job chapter 2. Uh, excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, in the next several verses here, there's not really anything right or wrong. I mean, it's definitely wrong what he's saying. But there, there's no doctrinal things that he's saying. Uh, Eliphaz is just taking uh, jabs at Joel. But I want you to see just kind of how mean he is to him. Because he, he says in verse 2, he says, For wrath killeth." The foolish man. So I want you to notice. In fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible or underlining your Bible, maybe underline the, the, uh, those two words, "foolish man," because the life fast begins to. He begins to speak about this foolish man. He says, "For wrath killeth the foolish man." That's that's the subject that he's refer, he's talking about. He's going to talk about this foolish man here for a little bit. Then he says, "And envy slayeth the silly one." So the foolish man is the silly one. Uh, He's saying, look, wrath killeth the foolish man, envy slayeth the silly one. Notice verse 3. He says, I have seen the foolish taking root. I want you to notice these words. Because he makes it real personal here in a minute. He says, but I curse his habitation. So notice the, the wording there. Because you've got to keep in mind, we're not just reading the Bible, right? Because we come to the Bible sometimes and we're like, the book of Job, you know, and you begin to read the book of Job, and you just read through chapter 5, and you're done, and you check it off on a list, and you're like, I have no idea what happened, I'm not sure what they were talking about, but, you know, I read the Bible. But here's the thing, what we're reading is these people actually having a conversation. And Eliphaz is actually sitting down, looking at Job, a man who just lost his family, just lost all his riches, is, is physically unhealthy, has had his life turned around in a negative way, and then Eliphaz is looking at him, he says, let me tell you something, Job, let me tell you about the foolish man. Wrath killeth the foolish man, and he slayeth the silly one. He says, I have seen the fool taking foolish taking root. Now remember, we learned about this last week. The Bible says, that an unstable man... The Bible says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So if you're uh, double-minded, you're not stable. If you're stable, it means you've taken root. So here's what Eliphaz is saying. He's saying, I've seen a foolish person, which is a negative thing, do a positive thing, taking root. He's saying, I've seen... This is what Eliphaz is saying to Job. He's saying, I've seen what we all now know it was a foolish man, but for a while, he took root. For a while, he got grounded. For a while, he, he, he began to flourish. Notice what he says, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. Here's what he, said. he said, but I knew he was a fool. And in fact, I cursed his habitation. Notice what he says in verse 4. His. See the word his there? He's talking about this foolish man, right? this foolish man that life has cursed, this foolish man that took root at one point, but now wrath killeth him and envy slayeth him. He says, his children are far from safety and they are crushed in the gate. Now, when you read this, you got to put yourself in Job's place because eliphaz is talking about this foolish man and he says let me tell you something about this foolish man his children are far from safety and his children got crushed now do you remember how it is that job's children died just a few chapters ago go back to job chapter 1 look at verse 18 job chapter 1 and verse 18 the bible says this job 1 18, remember when job's life is just falling apart Job one eighteen. while he was just speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Job's kids literally died by being crushed by this wind that came and made the house fall upon them. And now, just a few chapters later, you have Eliphaz saying, let me tell you something about a foolish man that I cursed, by the way. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. I mean, this is really a low blow, since Job just lost his children, uh, you know, and they were crushed. And here you have Eliphaz saying, you know, the full man is a, the foolish man is the one that has his children get crushed. Like, that's something that you can, you know, control. And and then Eliphaz is saying, and, and by the way, I cursed his habitation. Like, I knew who you were, Job, and I'm the one that cursed you, and now this happened. You know, so, here's the thing you need to read this and understand this. Go, go back to Job chapter 5, although we're going to come back to chapter 1 here in a minute. The reason you need to understand this is is because in in the upcoming chapters, Job is going to get really angry. And Job is going to start, you know, to fight. In fact, Job is going to get so angry that he kind of crosses some lines. And and Job himself even says some things he shouldn't say. But you need to kind of put yourself, and I'm not excusing Job, of course. But if you put yourself in the story, you realize why Job is so mad at his friends, you know. And look, I'm surprised Job didn't stand up and just punch him in the face, you know, uh, so I, I, you know, the patience of Job is there uh, to have this man say these things to you. I mean, he just lost his children by them being crushed. I and mean, then this guy's saying, oh, well, I knew a foolish guy who had his uh, children crushed, and I cursed him. And, you know, of course, he's insinuating that the foolish man is Job. Look at verse 5. Job chapter 5, verse 5. Then he says this Whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even unto the thorns. Notice what he says. And the robbers swalloweth up their substance. He's talking about this foolish man, right? He says, Job, let me tell something about this foolish man. Not only are his children crushed, but also the robbers swalloweth up his substance, their substance. Well, again, how is it that Job lost a lot of his finances? It was robbers taking his stuff. You Go back to Job chapter 1 if you want. Look at verse 14. Job chapter 1 and verse 14. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone. to So the Sabaeans came and robbed Job of uh, his uh, the oxen that were plowing and the asses that were feeding beside. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. While he, was yet speak, uh, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So how is it that Job lost some of his finances? The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans came, and they robbed him of his stuff. And then you've got his friend, Job chapter 5, if you would, saying, hey, the robbers swalloweth up their substance. It's talking about the foolish man who had his children crushed. So you can see that Eliphaz, you know, it's getting really just kind of mean and and petty. and And he's just really... Uh, attacking uh, Job. Notice verse uh, number six. Now, if you're if you're writing notes on in, your, in in the side of your Bible and saying you know what was right, what was wrong. Number six, you definitely want to put a wrong. Okay, if he, uh, Job five six, and life is going to say something else that's really wrong. I mean, verses two through five are just mean. You know, if you want, you can write mean. Uh, but but in verse six, this is wrong because notice what Liphas says. Because he just got done taking all these jabs at Job, right? I knew a foolish man. I cursed him. His children of robbers took all his stuff. Um, you know, he's saying these things to Job. Then he says this in verse 6. He says, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, uh, 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 of the dust neither does trouble spring out um, out of the ground. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the foolish man has all these bad things happen to him, Right? Wrath killeth the foolish man, envious slayeth the silly one, um, I curse his habitation, his children are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate. Uh, he says, the robbers swallow up their substance. So he says, all these bad things happen to the foolish man. Then he says in verse 6, he says, although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. All these bad things that happen to this foolish man, Job, you know, and he's like, Talking about you? He says, all these bad things, they didn't just come from nowhere, Job. That's what he's saying in verse 6. He says, affliction cometh not forth of the dust. Neither does trouble spring out out of the ground. He's saying, look, the accusation that he's saying, he's saying, these problems that you're going through, Job, didn't just come from nowhere. You know, this is happening to you for a reason, Job. You did something wrong. You've sinned against God. God is angry with you. Now look, we know that God's not angry with Job. God is very happy with Job. God brags about Job. Has thou considered my servant Job? But here, you have a life as uh, saying, look, bad things don't just happen. There's a reason why bad things happen. And here's what you need to understand. This is not true. Now, there's lots of reasons why bad things happen. But sometimes, please understand this, bad things just happen. And to have this attitude that says, oh, no, you know, Job, affliction cometh not forth from the dust, neither does trouble spring out of the ground. Uh, You know, this isn't just happening for no reason, Job. You must have done something. This is wrong. So let me me show this to you, and we'll talk about this here real quickly. Go to the book of John, if you would, John chapter 9. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 9. And let's just talk about, real quickly, why bad things happen. Because this is a common question that people ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, why is there evil in the world? I could preach a whole sermon on this. I could preach a whole series on this. In fact, I've preached an entire series uh, on this idea. But I'm not going to do that tonight. But let me, just, let me just give you some reasons why bad things happen. Um, Number one, you know, bad things may be happening in your life because God is actually just correcting you for sin. That is a true statement, you know. When something bad happens in your life, it may be God chastening you and correcting you because of sin in your life. In fact, we're going to look at that later on in this chapter. But that's not true of Job. Job's not being corrected by God here. But sometimes bad things happen because God is correcting you. Sometimes bad things happen because God is purging you. Sometimes God is not angry with you, God's happy with you, but He's purging you in order to make you better. And and, and I'm going to go to John 9, we could turn to another passage in John, I'm not going to do it for sake of time, but the Bible talks about the tree, the the vine that is producing fruit, so what does God do? He purges it, it's like, well, wait a minute, it's producing fruit, that's a good thing. And God says, yeah, so I'm going to purge it so it'll produce more fruit. So sometimes, bad things happen in your life because God is correcting you as a result of sin. Sometimes, God things happen in your life because God is purging you. He's cleaning you. He's refining you so that you can become better, so you can produce more fruit. That's what's happening to Job. Job actually says that, you know, when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. Uh, That's actually what God is allowing in Job's life. This is all going to make Job better. Sometimes, you have bad things happen to you because you are reaping what you sow. And we've talked a lot about that in recent days, the fact that the Bible teaches that there is this law in our universe of reaping and sowing. So look, you know, somebody smokes their whole life and then they get to be 65 years old and and they have lung cancer. You know, somebody might look at that and say, God's judging you. And here's it maybe God is. Look, we all need to be careful not to be Job's friends. And just talking like as if we know, as if we've got some window in heaven. You know, maybe God is judging uh, them for smoking. Or maybe they're just reaping what they've sown. And by the way, the law of reaping what you have sown is a judgment from God in and of itself. So I'm not removing God from it. I'm just saying, you know, if you smoke for 50 years of your life, you might get lung cancer. That's just the way it goes. You know, sometimes you reap what you sow. So, sometimes bad things happen because God is correcting you. Sometimes bad things happen because God is purging you. Sometimes bad things happen because uh, 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 you're reaping what you have sown. Sometimes bad things happen for no reason. Sometimes bad things happen simply because we are in a fallen state. Do you understand what I mean by that? The fact that we live in a cursed world. Now... The fallen state is a result of sin. Because remember when Adam and Eve sinned? The Bible says that sin entered into the world. But it not just entered into mankind, it entered into nature. Thorns sprung up. Animals began to kill themselves. You know, we live in this fallen world. Just realize that sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a fallen state. And, you know, that is as a result of sin, but it's not any spiritual. Anybody specific sin. Let me give you an example of that. John chapter 9, look at verse 1. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Here there's a grown man who's been blind his whole life. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned. So the disciples, they're like kind of like uh, Job's three friends, right? They're like, well, somebody, these things don't just happen for no reason. Somebody did something wrong here that this man was born blind. You know, master, who did sin, this man or his parents uh, that he's one born blind? Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. And and of course, is Jesus saying his parents never sinned? Of course, there's sinners, but he's saying there's no direct sin that brought this, young, this, this man's blindness. You know, sometimes people are born sick just because we live in a fallen state. Sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a sinful state. Jesus answered, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then Jesus teaches us this as well. Sometimes bad things happen in your life because God's going to turn them around for his glory. Lazarus died, which was a bad thing, and God had a plan to resurrect him and get glory out of it. So just realize that there's lots of reasons why bad things happen. So don't get this idea that every time something bad happens, every time something bad happens, you know, uh, it's it's God judging. You know, I'm not going to get up and preach a sermon every time there's a hurricane in Florida. God's just flooding Florida. You know, because, you know, you say, why are there hurricanes in Florida? Why are there fires in California? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tornadoes? You know, because we live in a fallen state. And sometimes God is judging. And sometimes it just happens because we live in a world that has sin in it. Sometimes it's God purging. Sometimes it's God correcting. Sometimes you're just reaping what you've sown. So you just have to realize that there's lots of reasons why bad things happen uh, to people. Go back to Job chapter 5. In verse 7... Eliphaz actually said something, and this is up for debate, but I think at verse 7 he says something that's true. So if you want to write, you know, true or right next to verse 7. He says this, he says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. So he says, look, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And, uh, you know, I think that this is a true statement Uh, because the Bible says this in Proverbs 22, if you want to turn there, Proverbs 22, if you're there in Job, you just have the book of Psalms right after Job, and then the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22, and look at verse 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. So here, Eliphaz said, yet man is born unto trouble. He says, as the sparks fly upward. He says, in the same way that sparks of a fire just naturally fly up in the air. He says, man will naturally just get into into trouble. Well, I think this is a true statement that he makes because the Bible says in Proverbs 22, which we know this is a true statement from the book of Proverbs, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And by the way, parents realize that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. So be careful about being the mom and dad who's just always. No, my little boy would never. You, you don't know your little boy. My little girl would never. Maybe you should look at the cameras. Because foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And I'm not going to show you the cameras. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, a man is born unto trouble. Naturally, we get ourselves into trouble. So you know what we need to do? The rod of correction shall drive it from him. Uh, so here is a statement that I think was a true statement. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Go, go back to uh, Job chapter 5. When I was growing up, the church I was growing up with, there was this family called, uh, their last name was Sparks. They were the Sparks family. And they had a kid in that, um, in that family who was really just like extra rambunctious and, you know, always uh, getting into trouble. And um, our pastor would always quote this verse, you know, Uh, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And he'd always be talking about the sparks, kid. So anyway, I always think about that. Um, That had nothing to do with the sermon. Go back to Job 5. Look at verse 8. Then then you have, you know, Mr. Supernatural Charismatic here. Now he's ultra-spiritual also. Because he's saying, all these bad things happen to you, Job, because you're a wicked, foolish man. You know, and this didn't just come from nowhere, Job. There's something you're doing wrong. You know, even though man is born into trouble as sparks fly upward. Then he says this. He says, I, if you ask me, Job, and Job's like, I didn't ask you. He says, I would seek unto God. And unto God, I would commit my cause. And in and, and, and life, is kind of talking down to Job. He's saying, here's what I would do if I were you, Job. I, I would seek unto God, as if Job's not seeking unto God. And of course, if you go back to Job chapter 1, remember the, the the chapter where all these bad things happened to him, to Job, in verse 20, the Bible says this, Then Job arose and ran his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. So Job was seeking God. Job was seeking the Lord. When, when he found out about all these bad things, he, he worshipped God. He fell down upon the ground and worshipped. But he' you have a life that is saying, well, I'll tell you what I would do if I was in your situation, Job. I would seek unto God. And he's insinuating that Job isn't seeking unto God. So you see how this is, this is a very hostile conversation um, that's, that's happening. Go back to Job chapter 5, or if you're not there, look at verse 9. Now, verses 9 and 10, you can put in the category of, of right or true. What uh, Eliphaz says in verses 9 and 10, not only 9 and 10, but also uh, 11 and, uh, yeah, verse 11. What he says is true. It's not really controversial or anything. Um, There's not even really super doctrinal. He's just saying some things about God that are true. In verse 9 he says, which doeth great things. He's talking about God. He's saying which God doeth great things and unsearchable marvelous things without number who giveth rain upon the earth and sendeth waters upon the field. So he's just talking about God. Look at verse 11. To set up on high those that be low and those uh, which mourn may be exalted to safety. So verse 11, there is a doctrinal teaching there. And again, verse 11 is right. Because here's what Elias says. He says that God, the same God who sends forth rain and water upon the earth he says, that God, he says, is the one who, he says, to set up on high those that be low. And those which mourn may be exalted to safety. So he says, He says, look, God will exalt those that are low. And this is kind of a counterproductive thought. And let me share it with you in scripture. I'll show it to you. Go to 1 Peter if you would. Uh, In the New Testament, if you start at the end of the New Testament, you head backwards, you have the book of Revelation, Jude, 32nd and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, 1st Peter chapter 5, you know, our world and our worldly philosophy teaches that it's a dog eat dog world, right? that you, gotta, you just got to climb that ladder, and if you got to push people off on the way, if you got to step on someone to climb the ladder, that's the way to do it, you know. And, and by the way, that, that'll work out in the world. If you're unsaved and you're worldly, that'll work. But God says, no, in my economy, it's actually the, the opposite. God says, if you want to go up, you got to go down. He says, with me, to go up, you got to go down. Look at First Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger... Submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another. And of course, being subject one to another requires humility, to submit yourself to uh, somebody else. He says, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. You know, sometimes there are people, and look, you ought to ask yourself, am I this type of person? And I'm going to come back to this thought on Sunday morning, uh, so just remember that when we're on Sunday morning together. But you, know, you got to ask yourself those as people, are you, are, are you the type of person who just has problems with leadership? Like it doesn't matter who it is, you just don't like to be under anybody's authority. You don't like to be placed under anybody. Look, if that's true of you, you've got a pride problem. You've got a pride issue. You've got an issue in your life that just says like, I just I want to be under anybody's authority. You know, if you, you don't you have a problem with Pastor Jimenez, you have a problem with Miss Joanne, but it's not us, because any church you went to, you'd have a problem with the pastor's wife. Any church you went to, you'd have a problem with the pastor. Any church you you know, the staff stinks, but but any church you went to, the staff would stink. Because it's not it's not leadership, it's you. You have a problem with leadership. You have an issue where you can't be placed in the authority. This is not a mature Christian, because the Bible says, Hey, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Look, we should all be subject one to another. And look, there are places in my life, there are areas in my life, here at, at this church, I'm the pastor, you know, I'm the ruler, I, I make the rules, that's what that means. I, I mean, is, Sometimes I go to other conferences, I go to the pastors, you know what I do? I just submit to whatever they say. Whatever the pastor there wants me to do, I just do what they tell me to do. I don't have this, no, I'm the pastor. Well, I'm not the pastor there. You know, I'm a pastor, but I'm not the pastor. So I just submit. You know, there are times in your life where you need to submit. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Now notice what the Bible says. For God resisteth the proud. See, when you say, oh, no, no, I'm going to climb my way up. God says, no, I'll resist you. I'll keep you down. The Bible says God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, notice what the Bible says, that he may exalt you in due time. And and you say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. With God, the way to go up is to go down. With God, the way to go up is to go down. And by the way, let me just let you in on a little secret. With with human leadership, the way to go up is go down. Because you know, even like in our church, When I promote people to leadership positions, you know, one of the big problems that I, I, one of the big concerns that I have, of course, like any pastor, is that when you promote someone to a leadership position, that they're going to, like, destroy the church. They're going to be like an Absalom that tries to split the church. And by the way, there's many churches that get split all the time. You know, I know sometimes I talk about these things and people think I'm just paranoid. It's a common thing. You know, so you say, well, how do you, you know, how do you determine who you put in leadership positions when people are constantly trying to, like, put themselves in the spotlight and put themselves in a position? That's a person I never put in a leadership position. So what's the fastest way to get in a leadership position? Just be humble. Like, don't make me have to wonder about you. Like, what's up with that person? Why is it that every time I'm gone, they're always, like, trying to, like, run the show? You know, the way that you you are promoted is by having those who can promote you, trust you, and be comfortable with you. And God says, look, when you're proud, I'm going to resist you. When you're proud, I'm going to keep you down. And he says, when you humble yourself, the Bible says, look, and, and by the way, you say, well, I don't need pastor and to promote you. That's fine. You don't need any man to promote you, but you know who you do need is God to promote you. And the Bible says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. God says, hey, I'll exalt you when the time is right. I'll exalt you when you're ready. Go to James chapter 4. You're there in 1 in, in, uh, in, uh, Peter, just flip back to James chapter 4. Look at verse 9. James chapter 4, verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So look, with God, in the economy of God, the way to go up is down. And by the way, the way to go down is up. You want God to resist you? Just get proud. Get arrogant. Start thinking you're all bad in a bag of chips and God says, I'll just put you down. You know, because the way to go up with God... Is down. And at the end of the day, it is God who promotes. Promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west. The Bible says that God is the judge. God setteth up whosoever he will. So, the way with God to go up is down. Go back to Job chapter 5. In verse 12 of the Bible, he says this, Eliphaz says, he disappointed the device of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grow up in the noonday at night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stopped with their mouth. Look at verse 17. Now in verse 17 and verse 18, he's going to say something right again. Okay, So if you want to mark right or true, verse 17 and 18, he says this, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth, Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty, for He maketh sore and bindeth up; He woundeth and His hands make whole. So here, Job is almost quoting Scripture, and we're going to look at it from Proverbs and Hebrews. All right, so let's look at it real quickly. Proverbs chapter three. This is true. What he's saying is true. Proverbs chapter 3, look at verse 11, you got Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says this, My son despised not the chastening of the Lord, neither weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father of the son in whom he delighted. I mean, you can tell that uh, Eliphaz is familiar with the word of God. Because Proverbs three eleven, my son, despise not thou despise not the chastening Lord, neither be of his correction, for whom the Lord he ch- he correcteth, even as the father a son whom he delighteth. And Elifa says, Happy is the man whom God correcteth, therefore despise not thou the chasting of the Almighty, for he maketh sore and biteth up, he woundeth and his hands make whole. So, you know, this kind of shows you that the word of God has been available to mankind from the beginning. And I don't have time to develop this thought. I'm just going to throw this out there. You can study it out on your own. Go to the book of Hebrews, if you would. You were just in James. So if you keep going backwards from James, you have the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. But you know, let me just say this about the word of God. The Bible says, Thy word, O Lord, is settled in heaven. The, 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 the word of God has always been. In the beginning was the word, is what the Bible says. So, you, you know, when it comes to the word of God... His word has not been written since the beginning. We know that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And eventually things got written down like uh, with Jeremiah and, his, uh, and, 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 and Paul would have people write things down. And that's how we got the written word of God. But look, the word of God has always existed. And, and here's what you need to understand. It wasn't always attributed to that whatever man. And I hope you understand what I'm about to say to you. Solomon writes... Despise not the chastened Lord, neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. But that did not come into existence when Solomon wrote it. That existed from the beginning of the world. So you have Eliphaz who's almost verbatim quoting that because it's the word of God. Do you understand that? That's why, even in the in the gospels, you have some books of the Bible that some chapters of the Bible that are almost word for word the same thing, you say, how can that be? Are they, are they plagiarizing each other? No, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. So what of God has always existed? So don't worry about, you know, because sometimes we'll get all scared. Of, well, what about this certain book? What if we lost that book? Here's what I believe. If there's any, first of all, a lot of these books that are mentioned, you know, they're just normal books. Like even in the Bible mentions other books. That doesn't mean they're Scripture. But even if they were Scripture, I believe, you know, maybe that book by that name is no longer in our canon. But whatever that book said, it's somewhere in the Bible. Uh, because, like I said, Eliphaz obviously heard something very similar to what uh, Solomon said, but Solomon hadn't said it yet. And, and and by the way, you know, in the book of Jude, we're told that Enoch, we're, we're told this whole sermon that Enoch preached that we don't have in the book of Genesis. So just realize that God, remember, God, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he, he's, he's omnipresent. Just realize that God is powerful enough to make sure we have the word of God and that it's not lost. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The, the word of God is true, and we just trust God's word. Uh, but it's just interesting that, and, and it's not just here, there's other places where life was almost quoting scripture, but it's before his time, because the word of God has always existed. I hope that makes sense to you. I hope I didn't uh, confuse you. But here's another example. Proverbs three eleven, my son despise not the chastened Lord, neither beware of his correction, and then it's quoted in Hebrews. So you have the same scripture quoted in different parts of the Bible. Hebrews twelve five, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastened Lord, nor faint when thou rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, you say, well, why would I be happy if God is chastening me? Why would that make me happy? Well, here's why it should make you happy, verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he when the Father chastens him up? He says, look, if, if God's punishing you, if God's correcting you, if God's just bringing the hammer down on you, you just realize then it must be that you're a son of God. And he loves you. For whom? Because the father, he says, he will chasten you, even as a father, the son in whom he delighted. So he says, look, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For a son is seen, the father chastens not. Look at verse 8. But if you be without chastisement. If you just live your life doing whatever you want and nothing negative ever happens to you, you just get along with the world. Everything happens great in the world. There's not, no negative things. He says, if you be without chastisement, where of all our partakers... And by the way, here's what he's saying. Where of all our partakers means everybody gets chased at some point. All believers. All children get spanked at some point. You know, maybe not in your house, but when God is a father, he's a good father... All the children get spanked at some point. He says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers? He says, then are you bastards and not sons. Here's what he's saying. He said, I'd be more worried if I didn't get spanked. Because maybe that means, you know what it means to be a bastard? It means that you don't have a father. He saying, maybe you're not, maybe God isn't your father. And don't get offended by that word. That's a Bible word. I just read the Bible. But you know, here's what he's saying if you be without chastisement where of all are partakers then are you bastards and not sons. so you say, you say wait, why do I feel good when God speaks me because God is dealing with you as with sons because God is your father and he loves you and he, and, and he cares enough of you to chasten you so this is one thing that our has said um, that was uh, uh, true go, go back to Job chapter 5 we got to finish this up okay verses 19 through 26 all wrong <laughs> alright that'll make it easy just it's all wrong In fact, 27 is wrong too, but I'll I'll put that in a different category. So in verses 19 to 26, he just goes into this prosperity gospel garbage. Um, So notice what he says in verse 19. He says, he shall deliver thee in six troubles. You know, he sounds like Benny Hinn. (laughs) He shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven, there shall no evil touch thee. In famine, he shall redeem thee from death. You know, read Hebrews 11 and tell me if this is true. And in war from the power of the sword, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. That's not even true of, of, of this chapter. Eliphaz himself is scourging Job with his tongue. And he's saying, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Just send in a hundred dollars, Job. Neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh, as destruction and famine thou shalt he say, "He saying, when destruction and famine come, you're going to laugh at it, Job. Like, if you were right, he's saying, if you were right with God like I am, this is what you would be living. You know, you'd have health, wealth, and prosperity. Neither shalt thou be afraid of beasts of the earth, for thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. He's saying, he's like getting into like, like, um, just uh, like New Age stuff. He's like, nature is going to help you, Job you know, you start just walking the right way and everything's going to work out for you. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, he's talking about, he, 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 You know, people teach these things like, you just start thinking positively and positive things are going to come your way. And I definitely think we should have a good attitude and we should be content. But look, God doesn't promise that every time you go to Walmart, there's going to be just an open spot right there just for you. You know, Nature is going to work right. out, and the uh, you know cosmic uh, energy that you put out. This is all a bunch of stupid stuff. <laughs> for thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And by the way, there's no new thing under the sun. All this stuff is stuff that you can, you can find books and stuff, people teaching this stuff today. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit the habitation, and shall not sin. He says, because you remember, he keeps, he's taking jabs at Job. Just stop sinning, Job. Be like me, and you can have these things. Verse 25. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. And again, this is a rude thing to say to someone who just lost all his children. Then he says in verse 26. Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age. You know, say that to Stephen, the first martyr in the Bible. Thou shalt come to thy grave in in full age, like as a uh, a shock of corn cometh in his season. He's given all this prosperity gospel garbage. But look, this is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Yea, all that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches the more godly you are, the more right with God you are, the more uh, like uh, the, the more you actually teach and preach and believe and practice the word of God, the more the world's going to hate you. The, the more, you know, they crucified our Savior. They crucified our Master. So this prosperity gospel stuff is not true. Now look, obviously, God wants to bless you. God wants to strengthen you. God wants to help you. But God never promised that you'd just be healthy, wealthy. Look, Paul was sick. Is that a thorn in the flesh? I mean, think about that. Paul, who healed other people, couldn't heal himself. But then he's would to say, well, you don't have enough faith, Paul, if you would have sent in more money. No. The prosperity gospel is not true. This idea that, you know, once I start living for God, everything's going to go uh, the right way. Now, we talked about this on Sunday morning. Remember the story of Moses? Sometimes when you start living for God, everything falls apart even worse. And you say, why does God do that? Because when you got a thorn in the flesh... You know, God, his response is, my grace is sufficient for thee. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes God lowers you so you rely on him. So you have to rely on him. So we've got all this prosperity gospel stuff. It's not true. Let me give you the last verse here that is also not true, not correct. Verse 27, loath this. Notice what he says. Because he just got done giving this whole speech. He's finishing up his speech. He says, "He says, this. We have searched it, so it is. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Job, we all agree, so that makes you wrong. He says, we have searched it, so it is. Hear it, and know thou it for thy good. Go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll finish up in Matthew 7. And life ends with this, with this argument. And it's an argument that we hear a lot today. And here's the argument. Most people think X, Y, and Z. So, therefore, that must be true. There's a consensus, Job. There's a consensus here. We've all agreed. They all agree with me. When I was preaching at you, Job, they were all saying amen. You know, we have searched it out. So it is. This is something that the world will often try to use and the devil will try to use. Well, no other churches preach about the sodomites like your church. So you must be wrong. Well, no other church is against, you know, shacking up with your girlfriends. Maybe your church, you know, their idea is this. Well, if everybody agrees, you know, let me let you in on a secret. Everybody agrees evolution is true, and that doesn't make it true. You know, everybody agrees uh, all sorts of stupid things. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, the Bible says this. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Notice these words. And few there be that find it. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches most people are wrong. And what most people are doing is wrong. Which is why, look, this is why most people are getting divorces. Because most people are living life the wrong way. This is why most people are messing their lives up because most people are doing what the world says are living by the course of this world and it's wrong. Yeah. I remember when I was growing up, my dad would uh, say to us, He'd say, If you're ever not sure what the right or the wrong thing to do is, just see what most people are doing and do the opposite. <laughs> and it's true. Look, look, let me explain something to you. This is true of any area in your life. You want to have financial freedom. Figure out what most people are doing and do the opposite. You you want to have health in your life? Figure out what most people are doing and do the opposite. You want to have a good marriage? Figure out what most people are doing and do the opposite. You'll probably be fine. And you you know what you'll probably find? Is that you're doing what the Bible says. Because there'll be many, many there be which go in there. And of course, this is talking about people going to hell and heaven. But the point is this. Just because there's a consensus doesn't make it right. Just because... This is why the Bible says follow not a multitude to sin. Just because there's a big group, well, we all agree, we all agree that God loves pedophiles. Well, that doesn't make it right. Alright? So here we have, Eliphaz saying, lo this, we have searched it, so it is. No, it's not. You're wrong, Eliphaz, Because many there be which go in there at, and they're wrong, and few there be that find the truth. So, generally speaking, if there's a consensus, they're wrong. Let's pray. In, uh, let, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be able to uh, study this chapter. And of course, with these, uh, with Eliphaz and with Job's friends, we kind of have to try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And uh, the only way to really do that is to just match it up to Scripture. Or is what they're saying true? Can it be found? Can that concept, that idea, be found in other scriptures, or is it false? And uh, Lord, help us to uh, just have that wisdom. And obviously. There could be uh, things that, that people disagree on or whatever, but Lord, just help us to just live our lives trying to always figure out what's right and what's wrong based off what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live our lives and align our lives in that direction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.